0: Hey, it's David Greenwald. I'm Dom Nicola, and this is Pretty Little Grown Man, the Podfectionists. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're back with another pretty little Liars, the perfectionist recap. Uh, we just watched episode six. six. Season one, back to back with season five. So if you are binging this podcast, episode welcome five. back.
1: This one is called Lost and Found. It was written by our great friend Kyle Bone.
0: Yeah, my friend Kyle from college.
1: Yeah. Um, congratulations
0: to Kyle for uh, getting the credit on this episode. Uh,
1: he uh, he doesn't have many credits on on Pretty Little Liars. I think he was. I mean, you probably know his story better than I do.
0: Well, I think his first, the first stuff he did were the uh, the PLL webisodes, mm-hmm. and then he wrote the infamous Christmas episode, which I was <laughs> uh, so stoked, you know, for Kyle, like, you know, just having known his, you know, his career journey and everything, mm-hmm. uh, for him to get it on the show that we love and we're recapping, and then to be like, oh, we didn't like this episode, yeah, like this episode. <laughs> and have to like talk about how much we didn't like it for, you know, for an hour, uh, but this episode was good. <laughs> good job, Kyle. Yeah, uh, yeah right. and it was
1: directed by Shiri Appleby.
0: Yeah, Sherry Appleby, who is good, of, also of
1: unreal fame. Some um,
0: interesting decisions in this episode about it. It felt like a lot of pieces.
1: There's one thing that episode. really stood out to me. Uh, I think maybe the fr- uh, when I was really, um, they were in the uh, the hospital. Mm-hmm. So we start in the hospital because we start uh, after. Caitlin has been hit by a car. Uh but in the hospital they were the the there was a long dialogue scene and they did the the thing that they used to do in ER. Do you remember? Did you ever watch ER? No. So they used to do this thing in in ER that became sort of a staple of a lot of um uh medical dramas and a lot of like um like Aaron Sorkin type walk and talk TV shows where they, you have, you have a bunch of characters who are all sort of like in a really tense situation. They're all like talking fast at each other and the camera spins around them. Mm -hmm. and doesn't stop. And it's, it's, you know, choreographed slightly so that, you know, whenever, so that you're always looking at the character who's doing the talking. Um, and I noticed that in this episode, uh, which happened to to happen to have occurred in a hospital, so, I don't know. I wonder if that's something that was thought about in the direction, was like, let's direct this like a medical drama right here.
0: Right. Oh, that's interesting. That's a good catch. Um, that's the kind of criticism you come to Pretty Little Grown Men, the Podfectionists Yes, for. that's right.
1: Uh, <laughs> I was laughing because when you introduced the episode just now, uh, the way that you said uh, the Podfectionists, it just sounded like there was... like. All your enthusiasm was just drained out of you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I wanted to see, we were just saying in the in the two seconds between finishing the episode and hitting record, uh, right. that I after this episode I'm less interested in the perfectionists and more interested in when are Mona and Allie gonna start doing scenes again.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh there there haven't been a whole lot of Mona and Allie uh, going on, especially like Mona's uh, at so Mona's at Taylor's uh, uh, super secret headquarters, which is also her her mobile home and uh, has discovered Taylor's secret connection to the uh, uh, beacon guard. And, um, you know, now that Mona uh, because of, Mona's like Mona can't get onto beacon guard because she's blacked out of the system right now or something.
0: I think she got back in, but what she doesn't have access to is what Taylor has in her version, which is location tracking. Right. And so she's getting, like, she's saying, oh, here's where Mason was, here's where I am, blah, blah, blah. Uh, And to skip to the end, she gets an alert that Nolan, who, reminder, is dead, uh, is at her apartment for some reason.
1: How in God's name can they track these people? Do they have fucking, like, subdermal... Tracking, chips? I think it's
0: just. I think it's just security footage. I think it's just face ID.
1: I guess so. Because you know, does not the phones.
0: Does, yeah, does it have to be more complicated? Although it could be tracking the phones too. Well, no, it but it's not tracking more... the phones because
1: Mason doesn't. Mason is tracking, and he
0: doesn't have his phone. That's true. Does it have to be more complicated than just face ID on
1: a security camera? Mm, I guess not. Yeah, probably not. It'd be yeah. nice if the, if that was identified, though, because I think that the thing that that the show still hasn't made as clear as it could be is that. This is like a surveillance state. Like they literally can watch you wherever you go. Right. Um I mean it was it was sort of I, I mean I I still don't get. You still don't get that feeling because you still have the uh, the characters doing the things that the liars used to do, which is like talk loudly about secret things standing in front of an open window kind of thing.
0: Right. That's the thing is that and this is like a gripe that we had about Pretty Little Liars, right? Like they would always be like having these very loud conversations and like having the windows open. And we'd be like, have you learned nothing? Have you not like figured out how to be like a little bit more covert? And with these characters, it's like, you know, you were surrounded by cameras at all times. And there's like a really nice reminder of that in this episode where Allie brings Taylor back to her place for Taylor to reconnect with her mom and do the big reveal that she's not dead. And there's a camera. There's the Beacon Guard camera in the apartment.
1: So, yeah, like, so Allie obviously took it, took the beacon guard thing down and unbeknownst to Allie, someone came in and replaced it. But see, that's the thing, though, is like Allie, like, I don't, Allie's character is being weird because she's, she's, she's being gullible when it's, when it's, when it's benefits the story to be gullible. She's not as smart and, and and quick witted as she could be and she just doesn't seem to be making very solid decisions about anything partly i think that like the fact that she took down the beacon guard box and thinks that like her that now she has privacy that when feels did, like when uh, did
0: that happen did we, uh, I, don't I think she that.
1: Sa- i think she said that she took it down a few episodes ago okay we never actually saw it but i think because i think mona came over and mona's like you know can we talk and and now like oh i took it down or something but it's like they would obviously know if their device had been removed. Right. So right. it's not like, Good it's point. A, so they're not going to like ignore that, you know, which makes me feel that like Ali, Ali should know that. And, or at least Mona should be like, well, taking the box down, isn't going to do anything. Right.
0: You're not off the grid. They're going to put the grid back.
1: Right. Like, like it's only a matter of time before they come and just replace it or know that you're up to something. Which is like everyone knows that Allie's up to something. If if you, the main security person, which we gotta talk about this data book or shit, but if the main security person uh who has jurisdiction over everything going on at and at the college uh is um is fully aware or has a contentious relationship with you, you being Allie, it's like then obviously they're gonna be watching Allie extra carefully. Right and but but Ali's acting like they're just they're not.
0: Right. There is a weird disconnect between what's happening with the perfectionist sort of going through the loops of a traditional PLL story where they thought it was one person, Mason, turns out it wasn't, so now they pick a new person who they think it is, Dana Booker, etc. And so that story is going on, but that's all very like small stakes. That's like a rat in the uh trunk of the car that's like someone scaring them in the sewer which is scary um but you know that's not that's a very removed set of narr- narrative actions from the idea of the beacon guard and the surveillance state and the stuff that was revealed in the big reveal from episode one. And just the fact that everyone is being watched all the time and it's addressed sometimes like, Oh, we have to go out to the woods and so people can't see us and so on, you know? Yeah. But it doesn't really feel like that stuff feels as, it feels like it would, it's important that it is remarked on and that there's more claustrophobia and it's like a missing it's a missed opportunity for this show, it feels like to me, because we're so they're so hung up on this, like whoever the person is, you know, the the villain character versus like, how about the broader issue of like the constant you're being watched constantly and the paranoia that should go along with that as people who have secrets and are talking about them constantly. You know, it just feels like that sense of claustrophobia uh, that could be there. Is is not there, and it's confusing to me.
1: Well, it's confusing because you know, bef- while even while they still believe that Mason killed Nolan, and again, it's like it's such a pretty little liar thing to hyper focus on someone who they like are sure is is a, or they sure are they sure is the killer, with like s- such. Uh, Circumstantial evidence, right? Well, and they're like, no, he's definitely the killer. Let's go tell the fucking cops that he's the killer,
0: right? Which, which is hilarious to me because it sort of speaks to the incompetence level of these characters, right? You know, which we talked about in the last pod, right?
1: Oh my god, there's there's so much more that's popping up as as I'm as I'm thinking about this. But so, but the beginning of the episode is essentially that. So finally, we see some sort of law enforcement officer show up in this. In this magical world of Beacon Hill, right? Because Beacon hap- Heights, it happens off campus, right? And right, because it happens off campus, it happens outside of this bubble. The cops show up, um, and Ava and Dylan are like, "Okay, we're gonna go tell them that we know that Mason is the killer." And Allie uh, is just like, "Sure, great, go for it." Um, and they walk over, and Dana interrupts and is like, "Thanks, officers. I'm glad you're here." But uh, don't worry, I got this. I got this whole thing covered. I got this hit and run outside of your jurisdiction covered, and the cops are just like, "Great, thanks, lady, who's not a police officer." Yeah, we're,
0: we're gonna go with. This we're because... here to
1: serve. We're here to
0: serve you. Yeah, we want to support the senator and all this stuff.
1: Well, now, there's two ways to, I think, to approach that. Uh, the one way that we did originally, uh, and I still feel this way, is that it's like it's just so fucking dumb. It doesn't make any sense that that law enforcement officers in the face of a campus who has recently had a suicide, a murder investigation, and now a hit and run would not be like, there's something fucking shitty and shady going on here. We are going to like double down and we're not going to let this, like this disgraced FBI agent tell us what to do. uh, Especially because she has no jurisdiction over this hit and run that happened outside of campus. Right. Um, Or, you could look at it as why aren't ava and dylan reacting more uh incredulously to the fact that like dana booker can show up and just tell the cops what to do and they totally bend over for her right like don't you think that ava and dylan should be like hold up what is going on here this is shady as shit we're fucked
0: yeah why aren't you doing (laughs) cop stuff
1: And, you know, we can say shit on this podcast now because they can say shit on Pretty Little Liars. Yeah, we The perfectionists. We get...
0: Caitlin says bullshit. She says bullshit
1: to her mom. Nice. You know, now we're in college. We're in college now, baby.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you can say bullshit in college.
1: (laughs) It's true. You can't in high school, but you can say it in college.
0: There was a crap in this episode, too.
1: Oh, man. Allie says crap. They're saying all the swears. Um, So, yeah. So, I just don't... I don't... I just think that, like... You know, they they shift focus from Mason because apparently Mason, um, I don't know, the, the reveals on the show don't feel as revelatory as they did before because it's like Mason isn't the killer, which we knew he wasn't the killer, but apparently he only has their secrets because Nolan gave them to him.
0: Right. He, so he was Nolan's insurance policy and he comes in and confronts uh, Caitlin in the hospital and is like, you had every right to do what you did, which <laughs> he had every par- right
1: to brain me with. Yeah. Par- parenthetical,
0: you had every right to like hit me with a metal pole, <laughs> knock me out and leave me to bleed out on the floor of this cabin, you know, like for him to be like, Oh, you know, I realize I've really been going down a dark path. <laughs> And I deserve <laughs> to really just get knocked out yeah. and left for you did, dead. You did
1: the right thing. And yeah. Caitlin's like, I did do the right thing. You're right. Right.
0: right. Yeah, that whole, I mean, whatever. <laughs> like, we knew that, you know, we knew that this was not going to, that he was not going to be the killer, you know, presumably. Uh, but what a what a weird, I don't know. That well, whole just situation the whole, felt wild the whole
1: The whole, so this whole situation that occurs during Ava's, Um, fashion show is that between the time when they have to check in at the fashion show and 845 when they have to go on stage, they have to use that time to go and find Mason's phone, which fell into a sewer grate after Caitlin was hit by a car. Right. right? right. That's that's, that's what's essentially going on. Yeah. Um, Because Mason's phone has the evidence that will apparently prove that he is the murderer which doesn't it actually proves the opposite which is that he was with his crew mates that night uh the night of Nolan's murder but during this whole time uh when Caitlin's in the hospital and uh Ava and Dylan are like trying to do this this like very time crunched thing no one is thinking I wonder what's going on with Mason. Right. You know? You wouldn't Caitlin's not even thinking, mm, I hope he's like not dead. I hope I didn't fucking kill him. Right. That's the thing.
0: They're like, oh, he's out of town with crew. It's like how does he go from being knocked out yeah. to I mean, they just assume like you knocked him out and left him on the floor and he just woke up and ran over. Right. Caitlin? And he's like, just like, Oh, oh geez, sure.
1: that hurts. My I have what a headache I have. Yeah. I don't remember anything that happened to me. He wouldn't show up again and be like uh, so I went out to meet my friend Caitlin at the cabin, and then suddenly I woke up uh, with blood all over the floor and right. my head throbbing. And I, I
0: just got all washed up and went straight to my crew uh, <laughs> crew trip. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so it's just like I don't know the a little, a little bit clumsy. Well, you right. know, What I,
0: I mean, think about it this way: um, not to be an armchair. Well, I guess I will be an armchair screenwriter on our little podcast. Like, what if she okay, had knocked him out? and tied him up right yeah and they're sitting in the cabin and she's like you need to did you kill nolan what was going on and he says kate no i was nolan's insurance policy mm-hmm. i i i've been i've been trying to be like him but i realized now that was that was stupid that was blah blah, blah. and they could have played it that way with him being tied up and then somebody turns out the lights Right, or a window breaks, or there's like a classic PLL scary moment, and you realize like, oh, there is somebody else out there, and you could have played out this, you could have had this revelation in a much more, I don't know, uh, a more a more cathartic way, I guess. Well, yeah, I I just don't like having him like get knocked out and be like, this is the thing that I needed to have happen to realize that I was screwing up.
1: Right. Well, then, but then like getting getting
0: violently assaulted.
1: But then, like Caitlin getting hit by a car is how the perfectionists realize that they're all friends again. You know, right? It's like, I mean, I understand that you you have the car thing because the car thing ups the stakes, right? And it's like you know their lives are at stake. They could they they, you know it's just like it's like when I mean
0: it it already was with Nolan. I mean, I guess that speaks to. I think we talked about this in an earlier pod that the level of the stake level has not felt that high, despite the fact that a guy got murdered in the first episode. Like they're more concerned with like their alibis and being innocent versus like a murderer being on the loose, Yeah, you know, and that was really, I think. That's why in this episode, they're like, wow, the game has really changed. One of us was physically assaulted. And it's like, did you not think that the person who did murder was available to do more murder? Right. You know, I guess you didn't think that. Okay, that's fine.
1: No. And what what a pretty little liar's thing to do to have someone get hit by a car. Remember remember when that car drove through Emily's living room? Oh, sure. And almost killed well, her Well, even,
0: you know, there's a big car accident in Gossip Girl. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's another one in The O.C., You know, Mm -hmm. like the car accident trope is, I guess. Isn't that how
1: Marissa dies in the OC? Yes. It's a car accident. Yeah.
0: And so this is really, it it is a trope of these like teen dramas to have car car, car, accidents. Cars are dangerous, man.
1: Yeah. You're more likely to get in a car accident than you are to, I don't know, die in an airplane or something.
0: Well, I mean, there's like, it's only like 30,000 people a year or something like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot of people. It's a serious thing.
1: I just I think it's it's true that the, the, the whole uh, the the consequences of what happened to Mason gets lost when Caitlin's hit by a car. And then the solution is to have Mason show up and be like
0: and be like apologetic. Yeah. Like, like,
1: I'm, you're right. You should have you should have hit me in the head really hard. It's like you hitting me in the head really hard, like made me reconsider. Right. How I've been acting lately. Right.
0: And I you know, I will say. Perfectly nice dialogue by our friend Kyle, uh, but you know what the the plot decisions I think that came out of the writers' room on this one were, uh, you know, I, it's good that they wrap up the sort of traditional PLL three episodes of thinking somebody's a villain before moving on to the next three episode uh, villain arc, which I'm sure will be the case with Dana Booker, and then we'll get some twist in the finale. Yeah, you know, I, like... I mean, I would love the thing about PLL is like we know it's predictable, and it has to know it's predictable. Yeah. So what if there's a twist and they're right and it is Dana Booker and they're like yeah it's me i'm da- i'm bad i'm the bad person yeah
1: i'm shitty like no one should have ever given me this much jurisdiction how did i ever get this much power right um i want to move over to uh Ava's fashion show yes which um, was also
0: very gossip girly to me
1: i've never seen gossip girl so i'll take your oh, i've actually seen I've in seen every episode, one episode of gossip
0: girl there is some sort of closing fancy, you know, rich person event, be it a charity fashion show or a dance or, you know, whatever.
1: Well see that's what I want to talk about. Like you know, we're we're hypersensitive to it, but I do think that like the thing that keeps emerging is this idea of class and I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing to think about, especially when you have these elite kids at this elite school uh living in relative luxury um, you know, not having to worry about money, uh, and you have this character, um, Zach, who is uh, apparently the person who's running the fashion show as far as logistics go. Um, there's a really funny, weird scene where we're first introduced to him. So we were at, we're at the fashion show. Allie has been conscripted to be sort of the faculty person in charge of this fashion show, and Ava shows up. And Allie says to um, to Ava, uh, "Here's this guy Zach. I tr- I trust, I trust him. I really trust him. He he'll help you out. Don't worry. He'll take care of you." And the first thing Zach says is like, uh, "No, fuck you! Like, <laughs> yeah, get in line. Like, get in line. P- peace out." And then Allie's just like, "Huh? I wonder. That's weird." Um, later, we find out that it's because Zach's family. Uh, lost their life savings to, I guess, some sort of pyramid scheme or whatever uh, Ava's dad did that he is now on the run and he also has all this money. Um, but until you find that out, this tension exists because you have Ava, who is a rich person, uh, complaining about not getting everything that she wants, in a situation with someone who doesn't have the luxury of money. Right. And so you feel that class tension and you remember that, oh yeah, Ava is a fucking rich person. Like she's used to getting what she wants. Right. Um
0: and this conflict and the conflict comes out in a very it, it becomes a real class conflict at the right. end. He's like, you know, I have to work in the summer because your your dad did crimes.
1: Yeah. And like and and you know, and I, I mean a a way to resolve that situation is then to have Ava take that bag full of money that she has and to give it to people who were hurt by her dad uh, to the extent that she can. But um, I don't like that. I liked that tension when it was simply just a guy who doesn't come from money. Who's like, I know who you are. Like shut the fuck up! Like you are a privileged person, and you need to realize that this class distinction exists. That like that I have to work really hard, and and you're your not idea get, of working really hard is not what what my idea. And
0: of you're it not going to get special treatment at the show with with six other people,
1: right? Be like so, what? Like but that but that's but the show isn't willing to actually like punish Ava for it or have her struggle because of it because what she realizes is such a fucking like rich person bullshit thing which is that you know there's the big reveal that because she has dirt on her face her... Her fashion line embraces imperfection, which is funny because as soon as she looked in that mirror, I like looked at you and I was like, oh, like, oh, I I got it. I got it. It's all about imperfection. Uh, yeah. And it's like, could you could you beat the themes of the show into our heads harder well, than and that? She,
0: and, and once again, like Ava is the voice of the show. Like she is the character. Right. And that's, I mean, that's interesting to me that she continues to be the character who speaks into this theme, you know, more so than other, more so than really any of the other characters who aren't who aren't
1: well. Then I then I hope this that sort of topic. I hope that her character arc involves her reckoning with class. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it will. I mean, I don't know if the show has ever successfully done that, but. Um, it would be
0: very timely it would be extremely nice to
1: timely say. to have the person because she like they they make it so clear all the pieces are there she She wants to be a good person and she she works really hard, but I think that part of this part of really reckoning with this idea of perfection is to reckon with the idea that that these people have privilege
0: right that you are allowed to attain this level you can aspire to this level of perfection and achievement uh because of your privilege right because if you were not in this position if you were like dylan you know i mean here's a guy who literally has to play himself into injury to get where he is yeah it's not none of this is easy for him. Right. You know? And he all he has to depend on is himself, which is not good enough because he can't he can't even, you know, he has the the doctor calling him saying so you gotta come to your appointment. Which right. Was, yeah. And this is like a toll a huge, a huge uh flip from uh Caitlin who's gonna go get an interview in the senators, another sen- Senator Hastings. The Senator Hastings. Senator Hastings office and Ava, who's like, Well I gotta get this Vogue thing, but you know, I'm, she could always fall back on Man, her. Man, like, Caitlin YouTube doesn't even whatever.
1: know what kind of connection she has. She has no idea that her new like uh, uh, m- crime, secret, crime conspiracy mentor, Allison De Laurentiis, has a personal connection to Senator Hastings.
0: Right, that's very funny.
1: I know what a what a what a, a hilarious nice little, little drop, a
0: nice little Easter egg.
1: Uh, So does that mean that uh, Caitlin wants to move across the country? Because I'm assuming that Spencer's mom is the senator from Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, I mean, I assume it's like a D.C. internship.
1: Yeah, I guess. So does that mean that um, Caitlin's mom is the senator from Oregon and she's running for the, the governorship of Oregon?
0: I guess so. I don't know what happened to Ron Wyden. (laughs)
1: <laughs> i know yeah we, we got our, so we, we have get some, we have good senators
0: we have we have good senators i guess we i guess it's too much to ask that we get a, a cameo by one of our real senators on the show <laughs> that'd be pretty amazing
1: you know back when uh i watched one episode of chicago fire the tv show yeah which it's like it's like years old now but um in the first episode of chicago fire uh Rama shows up and makes a cameo oh that's the funny the 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 much despised mayor of Chicago, Rob yeah. Emanuel. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, so Ava you know makes a big splash with her um, with her fashion show. The uh, person from Vogue friggin' loves it. Like just starts clapping before anybody else claps um, because you know Ava uh, has come up with the extremely unique idea of embracing imperfection in design. Uh, which has never been accomplished before. No one has ever. No one has no one's ever, ever thought this. about that. No one's ever right. stood in front of a mirror and looked at themselves with dirt on their face and thought, I got it. Right. E- Eureka.
0: Right. Well, and her whole, you know, the her whole character, the whole thing is... her Puffy interest, shoulders. Well, I guess also that. But her interest in, like, overcoming uh, or in, in accepting imperfection, right? It's like this is in the context of her parents doing crimes. Right. This is not in the context of like making mistakes or you couldn't do this thing you wanted or you didn't achieve something or you weren't good enough. Right. It's in the context of like absorbing that your parents did like actively malevolent things. Mm -hmm. Right. And so being concerned with your own perfection or imperfection or whatever is a little bit. Yeah. Like why are you worried about, your sort of own personal growth, why are you more concerned about the impact on the community? Yeah. The impact on society.
1: Trying to to take responsibility for the things that your dad never took responsibility for. Right. Because that's that's, who you are.
0: And that's totally absent from her character. And, you know, I think she's been probably the most interesting of the three characters. But, yeah, I mean, in a way, it makes her the least sympathetic of the three because here's this person who should be thinking about other people's needs and really is not at all. I mean, and that's
1: that's such a weird disconnect. And, you know, it's like there are like, there is definitely a uh, fixation that I think audiences have on watching characters, especially within soap operas who, who are more privileged than they are. You know, it's just, it's the basis of so many soap operas like this. And so it's it's hard to, or no, it's easy to figure out probably why that that fascination is. I mean, why why watch you know Real Housewives? Like you're you're fascinated with people who have more than you do. You want to know what that life is like. But at the same time, here we are. We want we want to, there needs to be this character that we connect to, and we we need to feel that like when, um. That when Caitlin... Uh, leaks Ava's identity, so that Ava is unable to uh, reveal herself w- the way that she wants to um, about her dad. That we there's a reason that we don't feel like that we don't give a shit. That be- it's because, like, who fucking cares? Well, and there could be
0: more grounding and more clarity around this through contrast with Dylan. You know, he is like a normal kid who's coming from the Midwest or wherever he's from. Right, he he's on a scholarship. You know, the the stakes for him are are totally different. And like we should be identifying with him, right? He should be not Ava, right? Absolutely, he should be more of the voice of the show, Uh, or at least someone who provides a contrast to Ava instead of them being basically, you know, pretty buddy buddy, yeah, uh, pretty much partners in crime,
1: right. Um, and so it's hard, it's hard because it's like, I, I want to like Ava, but I don't feel like I can really get on board with her as, or identify with her until she, uh, owns up to her privilege and how that has put her in this position. Right. Um,
0: that's a, that's a great point. I'm glad that, yeah, this was a really good connection to make, but,
1: but it's, and it's difficult too, because it's like, I don't know. I just don't see. You know, you have a character like the Zach guy, and um, and, and and the justice of of his character should be that well, he should he should be able to reap as many benefits as Ava does from working hard and from going and from participating from going to the school, and the reality of the situation is that. Even within the context of this fashion show, Ava is going to succeed and she already has with Vogue because Vogue thinks that she's great but it's not like the person from Vogue is going to be like oh who is who is your who is your floor manager this whole time oh was it this guy who worked super duper hard right no it's like he's he's just gonna go back to doing the same shit he always did and like get no recognition while here it's Ava the rich person who has all this privilege and she's gonna succeed
0: right and I think there is actually a good connection here with the way. Caitlin deals with uh, the senator, or I guess is her, who I guess is her stepmom, uh, right?
1: I think uh, I think it's her. Well, I mean, so we learned that Caitlin grew up in a household with two moms. I don't know who her biological mom is or what that situation is, I, but
0: I, th- I think the idea is because she refers to her mom being like the the wife of the senator. So like probably I think like she
1: calls them both mom. Okay, okay, that's the impression um, that I was getting.
0: Right. Okay. Well, so, okay, that's fine. Uh, well, but the, let's the let's just call her the senator then. You know, she's essentially a self basically presented in, as a very selfish character mm-hmm. in this episode. And here's someone who ostensibly yeah. is a public servant who is working for the people and is working for the good of the people as opposed to her own uh, advancement up the line.
1: A public servant who's progressive because she's essentially, she's, she's, I mean, it's almost like, uh, like, like, uh, Mayor Pete. It's like, it's a boon. Her sexuality is a boon to her electability to the extent that if it's, it's almost like, it's not, it's not if they found out that she was, that she was cheating on her wife. It's like if they they found out that she was cheating on her wife with a man, Mm -hmm. you know, that that's, that's the real scandal. Mm -hmm. So it's like, but, but I think like to add to what you're saying, um, it's like she's she is a public servant but she's also considered to be like a pro- a progressive public servant like so almost right. like
0: well that would be the i mean that would be the assumption right because coming from oregon um you know being uh an lgbt representative mm-hmm. that would be your assumption but the show doesn't really deal at all with uh pol- political discourse no and i think that was that was true in pretty little liars too where you know, the Hastings the whole Hastings election situation, there's not really anything about politics or about policy. It's all no. about the election. Right. You know, and the sort of polls and voting and the horse race. Um we assume that's, that's that Senator Hastings is a Democrat, right? That's, well it's, you know, Pretty Little Liars <laughs> lives in its own universe, right? right. So do that does that stuff even apply?
1: I mean, it you don't you know, get the impression. It's,
0: you, yeah, you don't get the impression. And So that's interesting to me in a show that now has characters who are, you know, political actors and Mm -hmm. should have some more that should have some bearing on the situation. Um, But it it really doesn't. But anyway, I I think what does come out of it is that, you know, we set we get the sense that this is a selfish character who's pursuing this goal, this uh, her political career, you know, sort of for her own gain at the expense of her family and you know certainly the implication is at the expense of uh the voting public who you know she she doesn't seem to be she's not like i'm the person who can help them yeah
1: there you know? there there is a a very revealing um scene in caitlin's uh, uh hospital room in which basically the 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 conversation ends with um Caitlin's mom saying, "I'm going to be running for governor, so you can't tell, you can't tell my wife, your mom, about this affair because uh, it's too much of a risk, right?" And so Caitlin's "Well, and this
0: like, is the cost of perfection,
1: right? Right, exactly. Uh, and Caitlin, you know, Caitlin responds like, "Oh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll lie because I," and she says this obviously. She there's a, definitely a sarcastic tinge to it where she says, "You know, I'll lie because you know I'm a." I'm, I'm, I'm your daughter. And in our family, you know, image is more important than telling the truth. And the Senator's like, great, great. Yeah, that's true. Yes. Great. Uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad we got this settled. I'll I'll see you later. Right. right, Exactly. (laughs) And it's just like, Caitlin basically is like, you know, you'd think that if, if your child confronted you with this like shameful truth about how you act and what what's expected, You wouldn't be so uh, ready to just like walk out the door. You know, Caitlin obviously starts starts crying, but um, it just it just felt like a very a, a very telling scene about who this character is, you could extrapolate it even farther and say like the perception of, of politicians in the pretty little liars universe is that all politicians are compromised and, and ultimately willing to corrupt themselves. They don't, there's no idealism to them.
0: Right. Well, and I think this is a sense that you get from PLL in general is that authority figures are all compromised. Yeah. I mean, you see it with the police, right? You don't really, the characters, I mean, the parents, uh, generally in the pll universe uh i mean a lot of them are bad actors too yeah you know who are who have their own issues and are certainly not any more mature or capable uh than their kids and many of them have done murder or you know cheated or all this stuff so the show really does not shy away from the fallibility of parents i mean it that's really Probably the core. Th- I mean, that more than eight, that's probably one of the core themes of PLL. Yeah. And now into the perfectionist as well.
1: It's strange, too, you know, thinking about um, they, that has got me thinking about authority figures on this show in general. I think one of the things that the show misses uh, just that it could maybe round out the universe some more some more is to maybe give us some sort of sense about other classes, other teachers. Because if you think about who, who are the authority figures on this show? Right. There's only four of them. Uh, Mona, Alley, Dana Booker, and Mrs. Hotchkiss. Right. We have a full college college, and those are only four authority figures that we met, uh, one of whom is a security person, one of whom is just a mother who's involved with like administration, and then two people uh, who are faculty, one of whom is a TA, and the other person who isn't even a teacher. So... I really wish that I, I would like the authority I would like the hierarchy and sort of administration of the school to maybe get flushed out a little bit more because I, I think it's true like the only other authorities we get are literal silhouettes when Dylan is um a uh, I think this is the last episode yeah when in episode 5 when Dylan is um uh, auditioning the authority figures that he's auditioning for are just uh, disembodied voices attached to three shadowy silhouettes. Yeah,
0: backlit, three backlit judges. I mean, it reminded me kind of like the Charlie Brown thing where they go on and the
1: teacher's like, wah, 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 wah. Right. And it's like, you know, and I mean, I think it's an intriguing thing to attach to this TV series, which is, you know, m- like maybe, yeah, maybe authority is bad. Right. You know, who who can you trust? It's not, you can't trust authority figures. Right. Right. So so you have to trust each other. Yeah,
0: I mean I think that is I think that really is the theme of both of these shows. That you cannot trust your parents. Mm-hmm. You cannot trust authority figures. Uh you have to trust each other.
1: You have to trust your uh your teacher with whom you're having an affair who is 10 years your senior. In the case of Arya. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs>
0: Well, that wasn't a good moral value, <laughs> but the friendship of the girls, yes, you know, I think is really more of the takeaway, and
1: then above all, yeah, it's about it's about f- forming those bonds with your peers rather than, but then, but then you have like them, you know, the Allie wants, and maybe this is like you know we've talked about how Allie is a broken character, uh, and it's it's easier to accept her arc and her faults if we remember that she is not the, you know, infallible. Brain that right, she is right. like you have to constantly remind yourself that that Allie and Mona are very broken people. And so that maybe they're not making the best decisions. All the
0: Yeah. Time. And I think her bringing Taylor back speaks to that. Right. Because Taylor is this character who we know, like, so they're, they think alike. They're very attuned to each other. And Allie has gone through this experience of like, well, here's what it's like when you come back from faking your own death. Cause I did that and you have <laughs> all the eyes on you. And so in a way it makes you safer because you're not out like on the run where no one is accounting for you. Right. You know? So that was an interesting uh, perspective for her to have that you come back and now, you know everyone knows that you were a target you know or that you were in danger but okay so that worked for you Allie sort of you know I mean uh, you didn't end up going to jail or whatever but it's not that any of that I don't think any of those things were good ideas well none of what you did was and
1: and then Allie like befriending these kids after like three days of school during which a kid was murdered and then like don't call me Miss De Laurentis, call me Allie I want to be like your mentor friend and because I've been in a similar situation to you, it's like, no, that's a, that's a bad relationship. And you shouldn't, they like, she, I mean, I don't even think that the show is saying that it's a good relationship. I don't think the show really, I don't think the show wants to say anything either way. Cause it wants you to just like interpret it how you want to interpret it. But I think there's, it's definitely valid to watch the show and think that Allie's relationship with the perfectionist is, is a bad and toxic relationship right? Right. that she needs like, distance herself from and be more of an actual authority figure, more of a teacher and, and, and cultivate that distance between them and these kids with, between her and these kids.
0: Right. Well, and like, yeah, yes, absolutely.
1: Because this whole, I mean, we've talked, I like think we playing talked games about, with Dana
0: Booker. Like, this is like, what is this? This is not a game. Know, like, Call act, the
1: cops. Grow the fuck up and act like an adult who, yeah. who has had a long traumatic history that you have apparently learned from. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a lot of maneuvering, to have this show hit certain benchmarks from PLL that are, are I guess, expected by the fan base, and uh, a lot of sort of narrative decisions that are are generally silly that are being made in like a more a much more to me intentionally soap opera way yep. than in, in Pretty Little Liars, which like tried to be a pretty serious show about trauma about surveillance about you know the the horror level uh of its you know the horror influence yeah and this show i think is just is not trying to do those things while still going through some of those motions so the tone to me really is uh pretty all over the place and much more actually Like, Gossip Girl, I think, is a lot more tonally close to it because that was a show where it's a totally a soap opera. Everything that happens on it is ridiculous. Like, the stakes are there, and you're sort of always being watched. I mean, it's similar because it's basically about surveillance culture in the form of this, like, all-seeing blogger who's getting tips from everybody, right? right? And the idea of Gossip Girl is that, Gossip Girl gets tips from everyone. And so everyone is betraying you. You can't trust anyone. You're being, everyone's sending off their texts, you know? And the whole thing is like, well, New York, you know, society is all very cutthroat and blah, blah, blah. And no one's really your friend. And at least in these shows, there is like, well, you know, friendship is real. Friendship is possible. And you can get through your secrets and blah, blah, blah. And uh, that's a nice thing to see. But it does speak to sort of the, these broader issues that all these teen shows end up getting into I guess which is like who can you trust how do you maneuver in the world who is going to be there for you which is you know the OC had its issues but one of the things that's wonderful about it's like you know the friendship that develops between Ryan and Seth and like the despite the weird soap opera things and multiple deaths and craziness that goes on in that show um, there is really a, a warmth and a uh, sincerity to to it, especially in the through the Cohen family and through uh, Seth and Ryan, and that's you know that doesn't come through in a show like this. Mm-hmm. Certainly not to that extent,
1: right? In this episode, the the friends all came back together and they're friends again, right? Yeah, which
0: is which is nice. Yeah, but it's also our friendship. It's also out of sort of the desperation of like well, someone tried to kill you with a car, so our, we need to put our petty grievances aside here because this is no longer, you know... I mean, I think that also sort of puts to bed the idea that one of them killed Nolan, maybe? I, You know, to me, that was the first several episodes that was really what I thought was kind of the underlying thing, was like, it's very possible that mm-hmm. one of them killed Nolan. Yeah. And the show has sort of gotten further away from hinting at that, but uh, I you know to me it's still kind of on the table
1: i mean the conclusion basically that they reach at the end of this episode is that um we still don't know who killed nolan it's not mason but we think that the people who have been fucking with us that's actually dana booker because she believes that one of us killed nolan
0: right but that's still and this is something that pll did too where they get into this thing where oh it's this person because of this reason but that still leaves the actual other person who's did the bad thing right i mean the situation where okay, Dana Booker didn't kill Nolan. Yeah. So who killed Nolan. It leaves you back at square one in terms of, well, here's this person who... Taylor's bad. Right. I mean, who knows? But it, it sort of gives them... The characters didn't seem to realize what saying that meant. Right. Like, Dana Booker's going after us because she wants to prove that we're the killers, but we're not. Thus, we have to deal with her and with a killer, maybe... Yes. Who even knows? And so
1: again, it, and also like, Dana has, has it all of Dana right, and da- and also that realization doesn't seem to actually uh, accompany the much harsher truth, which is that if Dana Booker is as obsessed and crazy as she's obviously like showing herself to be, she also has all of Beacon Guard behind her. Right. So she is like. The representative of this all-seeing uh, uh, panopticon of of state security and fascism is backed by this person who is apparently mentally unstable.
0: Well, yeah. Who I mean, who got fired from the FBI? Yeah. Um. So it, yeah, it, it's it's interesting that the show, you know, it's dealing with here's this. Former FBI agent. Here's this, you know, corrupt senator, basically. Or here, here's this, you know, senator who's willing to lie and harm her family, blah, blah. And so there is like a political perspective on the show, which is that these institutions are uh, corrupt and lying. Mm-hmm. And that should be connected into this idea of the surveillance state. And we're not there yet. Like that link is not really being made. No. I mean, we're not really feeling like we're into like an NSA. Snowden, you know kind of uh situation with any of this stuff yet you know and again like i'm not sure why like i'm not sure why we're missing that claustrophobia and dealing with this sort of small stakes situation of like there's one big bad who like stole a box of stuff you know that's the real issue not the fact that we're constantly being monitored by people underground
1: and chased by man pigs
0: right yeah whatever even happened whatever that even was pigmen in the tunnel, man I don't, pig I don't, I don't even pig know man. what that. I don't even want to analyze it because who? I it's even funny though they called
1: it, it Pigman because that when they showed the silhouette of the of the of the creature, it does look like a, a pig. It looks mm-hmm. like a, like a walking giant pigman. Um, so who's the Pigman? You know right. why is uh, Nolan apparently finding his way? Why is Nolan at Mona's house?
0: Yeah, there's a twist.
1: Who? Who knows?
0: Maybe it's a person in a Mission Impossible Nolan mask. The, a
1: those la, existed.
0: Ala, la PLL, yeah.
1: Ala No Khan. Was it Nol who who wore them?
0: Who had the masks? Yeah, I can't. I can't remember.
1: And uh, Sarah, what's right. her
0: name? Yes. Shoot,
1: red, what red was coat. Her name? Redcoat. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> it's just a big bush in my brain. Um or
0: was she she was the the um the black widow or whatever uh, it's too many too many things to remember
1: <laughs> I think redcoat was sarah yes um
0: someone she... can remind us we're on twitter at p l g m yeah. podcast
1: yeah find us on twitter follow us p l g m podcast find us on your podcasting apps. Rate us, review us. If you give us a nice review, we'll read it on the air. Hey, you know what? If you give us a bad review, we'll read
0: it on the air. We will read any review. Any review. Any review, we will read that. You know,
1: the more stars you get us, the more we're, we'll climb in the hypothetical charts. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks for spending time with us. Thanks for being patient as as we, you know, have basic live things. Life, life things that get in the way of us recording every week. Um, luckily... Uh, we were able to watch this recent episode on through my Disney ABC screening password, uh, because we are professional critics who are professionally reviewing this TV show. <laughs>
0: we sure are. <laughs> this is the only professional criticism I'm doing anymore, Dom. After after a, a decade long career of professional criticism, this is now it.
1: And man, and you know what? Now that, now that, uh, critics are being attacked from all sides on Twitter, oh it's no more important than ever to, to stand up for this art that we participate in.
0: You know, I, that's, that's a funny thing to say. <laughs> uh, I do want to say, I don't want to spend 20 more minutes on it, which we are, are want to do. Uh, but, uh. There was a tweet that went out this week from the artist Lizzo, mm-hmm. uh, who is a very charismatic, uh, great performer with a good message. And basically, like, Pitchfork gave her, you know, kind of like a three-star mediocre review. Yeah. And she put out this tweet basically being, like, all caps, you know, very uh, hyperbolic, you know, card- a cartoon tweet, you know. I don't think she was super... I don't think it was intended to kick off a firestorm of essays. You know, I think she's just venting. But she, she, she wasn't thinking about it very hard. Right. And she was just like, you know, critics who don't play music should be unemployed. And it's like, well, you know, that was, I tweeted about it and I saw people writing things and yeah. that was the most that I had engaged in music Twitter in like mm-hmm. two years. And it felt really good. I was like, oh man, tweeting about something that like, isn't Donald Trump. Like, oh, it feels Fun yeah. to talk about something like frivolous in a passionate way.
1: But also, like, let's be honest, there's nothing that critics love to talk about more than criticism. Oh, of course. <laughs> yes. Than the act of criticizing. Yes. Because it is it is a very existential thing that I think that any critic has to deal with and be very aware of. Right. On well, a you very have regular to, basis. You
0: have to you do have to kind of justify yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think now more than ever, because the critic occupies this role that was important when it was a consumer guide situation and there was a limited amount of funds to go out and buy the things you needed to, you wanted to consume and no way to really know what was going on without the critic who was serving that role for you as well as, you know, contributing to the broader cultural dialogue around what art means, blah, blah, blah. But you know, essentially what you were was a consumer guide person, Mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, I mean, that was, uh, Robert uh Kreiskow's column forever when the village voice was the consumer guide, which was intended to be like sarcastic. Right. You know, it was intended to be like, Oh, we're 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 actually more than that. But, you know, we're not at the end of the day. And so for it it was just funny for the thing that I said was that, you know, it's funny for Lizzo to sort of have this this uh, you know, cartoon overreaction to this because like no one is making a living doing this. This is a dead medium. This has no impact on your record sales. It's not going to affect, you know, it's we've been so, um, well, I don't, can't even say we because I don't do this anymore. But the the music critic in particular has become so marginalized because it's an industry, a niche within the, a failing business of journalism covering, you know, the, the failing business of uh, music, which is not failing anymore if you're on a major label and you... Are getting your spotify checks but you know for certainly the uh, any of the underground music that people like me were writing about in the 2000s mm-hmm. like that is you know any cash in that whole thing is evaporated
1: did, did you see ariana grande's related no, tweet? What, did, what did she say about well her? i don't see so i don't i don't know where it where her tweet stemmed from but it's there's very there's very much a a sort of feeling going around twitter about this this sort of critic artist dichotomy and and dynamic and i don't know if she was responding to anything that had to do with lizzo but she did say something along the lines of like uh it was it it feels also like a dumb cartoonish tweet where essentially she's saying i wish that critics could stop doing what they're doing um and realize that it's more fun to create and and essentially saying, like, I wish critics would stop being critics and get on board with just making stuff because we're like, it's so much because like it's so much better for the world to, to make rather than criticize.
0: See, oh. I think this is this is OK. I have several points. I should well, probably
1: find the tweet. So yeah, I'm not no, like but, totally like.
0: But I think there is a sense from there is like this. What Lizzo said that if you don't basically like if you're not a musician, you shouldn't be writing criticism. Right. And this is something that comes up over and over and over from musicians. Like this is not a new idea uh, that, that this is not the first time this controversy has come up. And I think it's a ridiculous thing, honestly, because that's not the role of the critic. Like to me, the role of the critic is to be a representative of the audience and the audience who listens to your record. Everyone who listens to your record is making a judgment about whether it's good or not. And they're not doing that based on having learn music theory or going in the studio with you or any of that stuff you know right. and part of your job as a musician if you're interested in people absorbing the process and your skill set and all that stuff uh it. part of your job as a musician is to communicate that yeah. whether that's happening in a video or a documentary or your tweet or or whatever right because it's like If you want people to relate to the process and understand what it takes to do this and understand it on a musical level, well, you need to break it down for people who are not professional musicians. And guess whose job that is? The fucking critics. Right, That's our job. And I will say, sure, there are lots of bad critics who don't know the first thing about describing music. And like a trend of the last 10, 15 years has been pretty much toward talking about like narrative soap opera narrative and political stances and lyrics and not really talking about music at all in a, in a, you know, in it's a very low percentage of what actually happens in a music review. And I, I hate that trend. And even if you're going to be doing gonzo, 1970s Rolling Stone speak to describe stuff. That's fun. That's what music criticism is to me. And so I would rather have people giving like silly descriptions of glimmering guitars than just like saying, well, this person talks about, has this lyric and put out this Instagram. And this is sort of the narrative of this record. Cause that's not its context, but it's not the full picture. It doesn't really speak to the art form. So given the fact that, uh, yeah, there's plenty of bad critics out there, why are there bad critics? It's because there's no money and everyone's 22 and there's just no, uh, way, you know, in the same way that lots of people are bad musicians and you can't really treat this as like, if, if a hundred reviews of your record come out and some of them are poorly done, it's like, guess what? Like, that's just how it is.
1: Well, and it's, you know, and I, I I can't find the tweet. She she actually might've deleted it. She probably got a bunch of shit about it. But, um, I think that her tweet and Lizzo's tweet to a certain extent, um, Coincides with another thing that I was telling you about, which is that uh, there are no besides like in New York and L.A. There are no screenings for Avengers Endgame. Mm-hmm. Now I think that, that speaks to something broader, which could apply to Ariana Grande or could even apply to Lizzo, who is is enjoying a a lot of glowing popularity right now. Ariana Grande has sixty two point two million followers on, on on Twitter. When you're when you're that large when you're Ariana Grande or you're riding a, a wave of hype like Lizzo who signed to Atlantic, you know, one of the biggest record companies or your Avengers end game, you are, you are no longer beholden to critics. No, you're like, critic proof. You're critic proof, which means, and I feel like that's like, that's the way that we're going because now that we have uh, a, all, all access to whatever we want and B, cultural institutions that do not need critics and that amount of cultural institutions are growing uh uh adver- like and also those cultural institutions are being are sort of have antipathy towards towards critics in a lot right. of ways right um I think that these are all bad signs like yeah you know well,
0: I think it's fair to say the utility of the critic. The gone. role of
1: the critic is... Like, it's over. It needs to be reimagined. And the the, the basic idea or the, the basic reality is that we don't know what a critic should be doing anymore. Right? I mean, when I review a movie, I do it more out of obligation than I do because I have like some burning thing that I think is going to affect the way that people talk about about these movies. I mean, that's just the, like the the reality of the situation is that I can write a review of Shazam and be super honest about it and i think have a great argument but who is who's that going to affect i right. mean it's it, it well i but i know, do think it's I, don't know.
0: I do think it's important i think it's people should be thinking there should be people whose job it is to think about culture just like there should be people whose job it is to think about lots of different things mm-hmm. and put things in context and your job as a critic is to be part historian part critic uh you know part educator and part uh advocate for the listener mm-hmm. and part bridge from the artist to the listener and if you read a great review it it becomes part of the art it tells you more about the art you understand it in a new or deeper way and that's really important and the art alone is not going to do that yeah. you know and you are going to the. it's not the artist's job to provide you with like the summary of the art and artists tend to hate that they want you to take away from the art what you need to. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you can read someone's review, like there were so many great things written about, um, Beyonce's lemonade, yeah. uh, by black writers right. and talking about the references that she makes and you know, where, where some of the imagery comes from and all this stuff. And if you are a white person like me, who's just watching this as this movie with, you know, little understanding of some of the things you're seeing reading this stuff makes it so much richer and more powerful oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and just deepens the art mm-hmm. because you understand more of what's happening in it, you know? Right. And you can appreciate it on a deeper level than just your sort of visceral reaction to, Oh, I like the song or not, mm-hmm. you know? And ultimately like the critic doesn't provide any value in saying the song is good or not. Right. You know, you have to say, you have to have some kind of context and perspective and, I think it's really important to interrogate your own perspective and your own biases. And if you, you know, I I think like the sort of classic example of like the indie rock critic or the rockist critic who's into something DIY and rejects something commercial or or whatever, or likes a rock album but rejects hip hop or whatever. It's like, well, what made you do that? Because that's your reaction, but your reaction doesn't have any value. Mm -hmm. What has value is your interrogation of like how you got to that point and you're communicating what made you feel that way.
1: Well, I think it all comes down to, uh, to bring it back around. It comes down to authority. You know, what is a critic, a critic survives with this idea of authority. Where does that authority derive from? And is that authority valid anymore?
0: Right. Well, I think before it derived from scarcity because you Where the person who had access to a hundred records, exactly, and now everyone does, right. and I mean the new criticism is curation, mm-hmm. and curation is now corporate because it happens directly on Netflix and Hulu and on your fucking PlayStation. When you mm-hmm. open your PlayStation and you go to like the TV section or the media section or whatever, it's like here are the highlights, and it's like so the corporations that are providing you with the thing that you were going to go that you were paying for essentially are also now curating that experience and taking on the role of saying, this is what's worth your time. Like Netflix is making its own stuff and then putting it at the top of Netflix and being like, this is what we want you to watch that we paid to make
1: under the illusion that it's actually like curating it for you. Right. I mean, Netflix got dinged because people like, especially, uh, black people were claiming that, Netflix was like in the little uh, like uh thumbnail pictures was showing tertiary black characters uh to target I guess the audiences thought they were being targeted by being shown black characters oh
0: in in movies with like white main characters right but oh, then show
1: see. like the black main character on the thumbnail like picture right to
0: try to sneak you into the watching and it's like
1: it's like netflix netflix is telling you what to watch but is disguising that behind the illusion that it's giving you what you want right Um, well
0: it's yeah the whole picture is a I mean, the it's it's which is really, like false
1: criticism. It's like being a false critic,
0: right? Of. I mean, it's really come to. I feel like it's coming to a head, and I'm really feeling like it's super bleak out there. Oh yeah, this my This week, like thinking about some of the stuff, and you know, Disney buying out Fox, and just like the consolidation of these businesses. Somebody was saying today on Twitter, like you know didn't they figure out when they raised all the prices on all this stuff in the music industry like that's when people started pirating things yeah. like that's how you break your business right. you know but that's what seems to be happening with all these streaming services that you're going to end up having to like basically pay 100 bucks a month to watch everything again you know
1: well and it's like you know with uh with Disney buying all these uh, buying Fox and now having this massive library of all these classic movies it's like they're not going to license any of that to Netflix. So essentially the access that we thought that we all had is going to start breaking down and atomizing even more. So essentially we're just going to be paying more money than we ever have to have the access that we thought that we originally had but because all of these massive corporations are are in direct competition with each other so if if, you know so there's not going to be like no fox disney movies that are ever going to be on netflix again which is just going to get compensated on netflix by their own original programming so you know in five years netflix is probably going to be like 80 percent its own programming right so you're going to be buying netflix for netflix shows right And so then it's going to be like, well, what about all the movies that I wanted to watch that weren't directly Netflix originals? Where are you going to go for them? Well, you can go to the Disney platform, but Disney platform is only going to give you the Disney and Fox movies that um, you originally thought that you had endless access to. And so then you're just going to have limited access as it is again. It's like... I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe the the critics of the future are, str- are are people who can put together some goddamn good streaming lists, like what I'm currently doing, because that is how that scarcity is going to manifest. Right. You know. I don't yeah.
0: Know. No, I think it's I think it's very bleak. And at least with music, it's like, you know, if you choose Spotify or Apple Music or, uh, you know, Title or or whatever. The catalog is pretty homo- like pretty much the same. There's a lot of it's mostly overlap, mm-hmm. right? Like you have the occasional exclusive thing here and there, but generally, if you want to listen to, if you have a list of 100 artists, you're going to probably find 95 of them on all these platforms. Right. So that's nice to me because I'm just going to pay my 10 bucks a month to Apple Music forever, and if there's something that's not on there, I can just buy it on Bandcamp if it's something a little more. Uh, Obscure, Mm -hmm. so that is going to cover certainly enough of my music listening to fill up my days, you know. So, but if I had to buy five different services to hear records, I mean, when people started doing things that were like title exclusive or Spotify exclusive or whatever, I would be like, cool, I will wait this out and listen to it when I can fucking hear it, you know, because I'm not going to spend an extra ten dollars a month forever. To right. Hear this one thing. Right. I mean, I'll go buy the record. Yeah. For ten dollars, that's fine. I mean,
1: I bought Lemonade. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm happy to, exclusive. I'm happy
0: to go buy that album and give musicians money. And a part of it too is like I feel like if you actually give a musician ten or fifteen dollars, you are making a dramatic difference to that musician and label in a way that you know when you give money to Apple for Apple Music, I just assume that helps no one do anything. Right. It, and it's just like the cost of me getting the access and I still need to buy records on top of that to do any kind of actual contribution to musicians. Yep.
1: Um, yeah. So, uh, I think we should end on this extremely uplifting note. Former
0: episodes of this show. <laughs> we're going to keep criticizing it for free.
1: That's right. Uh, yeah. So here comes four more episodes. Um, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we're just kind of doing this week, week by week if you haven't already noticed. Um, but as we always say, you should come and find us on Twitter and par- and uh talk to us and, dip, and you know fill in things that we got wrong, tell us what you think about the show, um argue with us or agree with us. We're at PLGM podcast on Twitter. Um also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, um I don't think we're on Spotify. On all, on all your podcast catching apps, most of your
0: podcast apps,
1: most of them, uh, rate and review us. That helps us. We will read those reviews, uh, good or ill. Um, and uh, oh oh, and I I want a quick plug. I um, this you will probably be listening to this on Thursday, the twenty fifth of. April, and I am also on the Paste podcast. Uh, I recently recorded a little segment about the five best movies currently in theaters, and I give my opinions on them. I cover such movies as um, Harmony Corrine's The Beach Bum, Ooh. which I loved. Yeah. It's a great movie. That's and awesome. So I talk about it. So check out the Paste podcast. You can hear more of, of this voice um, talking about movies. And uh, then come back next week, and we'll talk more about the perfectionists.
0: Come back next week, bitches. <laughs> that tag sucks. What? Do we, how about? Uh, let's come up with. A, we need another one before we can wrap this up. Surveillance well, culture, bitches. Yeah. <laughs> Politics are bad. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Sure. Okay. I like it. All right. See you next week. Bye. Can't
1: keep a secret. What a
0: keep I know what you're keeping. for you never tell.